So we're going to read from John chapter 5, verses 16 to 30. Last week, we looked at the beginning of John 5, which was the story, a powerful, amazing story of the, the man who'd been an invalid for 38 years. We don't know whether he was 38 years old or that's how long he'd been an invalid for, but uh, he had, was at this pool of Bethesda where lots of other um, sick and disabled people were placed uh, because there was a tradition that said that every now and then an angel stirred the waters, and whoever got into the waters first after they'd been stirred would be healed. And so this man had been waiting all of this time in the vain hope that he might get into the waters, and Jesus came along and uh, learned that he had been an invalid all that time, and out of compassion um, told him to get up and pick up his mat cut through all the hurdles and the barriers and the obstacles in this man's mind um, and came into that environment of, of uh, sickness and, and perhaps a little bit of defeat and, and so on and brought uh, hope and opportunity for a new beginning. So we're going to read the next part of the story, which is the, 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 the flack that Jesus got for healing because all of this took place on a Sabbath day. All of this took place on the Jewish Sabbath. Uh, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown is the Jewish Sabbath. And so uh, Jesus was persecuted by the Jewish leaders because of this. So from verse 16 in chapter 5 of John's gospel, let's hear God's word. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, 
for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Amen. May God bless this reading to our understanding. So I asked you to think about who, in what respects, you were like your father. And I'm not going to do another straw poll, but maybe that some of you here uh, have the same kind of skills or talents or whatever as, as your father that mean that in some way you're, you're in or, or entering in or following in the footsteps in the family business, so to speak. Uh, I met up with a friend earlier on this week who is one of the few remaining horologists in Scotland. A horologist is a clockmaker, and this guy specializes in uh, grandfather clocks and, uh, uh, you know, kind of mechanical clocks, none of your digital nonsense. Uh, this, is, this, is, this guy does the real deal. Um, and uh, that's the family business. And every day he drives from Glasgow down to West Kilbride uh, because uh, his father, and I think his grandfather before him, has set up this horology business, uh, making and manufacturing and re repairing and importing and selling and so on grandfather clocks, which proved very handy for us uh, because we've... Uh, uh, We've not quite inherited, but we've become possessors of a grandfather clock from Ruth's family, which is passing its way down. And so it's very handy to be able to, to say to Ali, any chance you could have a look at this, this clock? And I sent him a picture of it, and he said, oh, yes, that's, a, that's a, a, a very fine example of it. What did he call it? It was a Scottish long box or something like that. I can't remember. It had a fancy term anyway. He took one glance at it. And then when I was talking about him with him the other day, uh, he was looking at the pictures. You know, old-fashioned grandfather clocks have kind of ornate pictures in the, in the clock. Um, and uh, he said, oh. He said, normally they've got the four, the, they've got the four continents or, or four continents uh, depicted. Or what was the other thing? Or it might be the four seasons, spring, summer, winter, uh, and autumn. Uh, and so we looked at them and discovered that and the, the pictures in this particular grandfather clock say uh, it's got the four elements on it, earth, fire, air, and water. He said, oh, that's very unusual. I've never seen that before, and I got really excited. <laughs> However, we'll see. People know, if they know a business, then they know uh, their stuff, generally, if you've grown up with stuff. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day who, though not... Uh, a joiner. Uh, their dad was a joiner, and they were apprenticed. And so even though they are now a minister, the fact is that they were apprenticed to their father before they ever entered the ministry. And let me tell you, joinery skills in the ministry are never wasted. There's always stuff needing fixed or made or whatever. And this guy is now developing a, a fresh expression, uh, doing a passion play through the streets of Hamilton, which is fascinating. Um, they've been the last year or two. They've been taking and developing a passion play, and taking it out and using the local shopping mall and a lounge bar and various other places uh, in order to put a passion play out onto the streets of Hamilton in Scotland. Uh, and being a joiner is extremely useful to him because he uh, can make lots of the sets and bits and pieces that are made. We carry elements of where we've come from and who, who we are, and, and uh, part of that deposit, 23 chromosomes worth, comes from our fathers. Uh, it has always been a source of uh, amusement and fascination to me that my grandfather, who was a Church of Scotland minister, um, 
originally in England and then uh, moved from the United Reformed Church to the Church of Scotland and ended up in a church in Leith in Edinburgh, uh, which actually is now a Hindu temple, but I don't think that's a reflection on his ministry. Uh, but he was the Church of Scotland minister, but my grandfather on my father's side was dead before even my mother met my father. And so she never met him, far less me meet him. And my father's brother, my uncle Dennis, was a minister in the Church of Scotland. But his ministry, although he was a minister in Duke Street in Glasgow uh, for a few years, he then went into publishing and uh, edited something called the British Weekly that just about everybody here will be far too young to ever even have heard of, but was, uh, was a kind of regular Christian publication in the days when there was uh, a regular weekly Christian bulletin that sold, and everybody knew it and everybody read it. So there's a sign of the times that you would not get a Christian weekly or a Christian paper uh, off the shelves nowadays. But uh, the British Weekly was well known back in those days. And then he carried on and set up a publishing house and did various other things. All that to say, he lived most of, uh, certainly he lived his life when I was growing up in London and my dad and his brother weren't particularly close. And so I met him, I think, about four occasions in my entire life growing up. And so it's always struck me as quite amusing and peculiar that I've ended up in the Church of Scotland ministry, uh, even though I have a, a paternal uncle and a paternal grandfather who were Church of Scotland ministers, neither of whom were in a position to have any direct influence on me uh, in any way, shape, or form. So you will already know, because you've talked about it, the ways in which you're a chip off the old block. And that may be, some of that might be good stuff, and some of that might be a challenge to you. You might have irritating mannerisms or habits. You might have a bad temper or a, a predisposition to things you know that uh, you've got from your dad, and actually it's as much a challenge to you as it was to him. Jesus performs this miracle, this spectacular, beautiful miracle where a guy who's had nothing to do but rest for 38 years, lie, uh, supine, prostrate on a mat for 38 years, dependent on the charity and mercy of other people to schlep him back and forward to the pool at Bethesda every day. And suddenly this period of rest is ended and he is called to his feet and to the first thing he's been able to do for himself for 38 years. And at the same time, he has been set free. He's been set free from the stress and the burden and the frustration and the disappointment of his invalidity for 38 years and has been brought on the Sabbath into a place of rest from all of that. And so one and the same time, he's been uh, allowed to stop resting on the Sabbath and he's been set free and allowed to rest from the stress of his uh, position and situation. And of course, the Jewish leaders um, strain out a gnat whilst swallowing a camel. They appear blind and oblivious to the beautiful thing that is going on right under their noses. This miracle that didn't even involve getting down into the water and yet all they can see is that this man is carrying his mat on the Sabbath day. And even it seems when the man explains to him, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat 
and walk. So even when they find out what has happened, the sheer scale of this miracle, it seems unbelievable to me that you wouldn't immediately forget about the Sabbath stuff for the moment and just ask about the healing. I mean, if I met somebody who was up and walking, who I knew and other people knew because he was a fixture, part of the wallpaper at the Pool of Bethesda, been there every day. You know, beggars have pitches and people uh, have the, the places that they regularly go and they become part of the scenery. We have Casper uh, outside who paints little paintings and you've probably all seen him outside selling his little sketches and so on so he can make the 15 quid he needs to make to get a roof over his head. And if he doesn't make the 15 quid, he has to sleep in a tent. And so he's part and has become part of the, 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 the rhythm, the life, the family of this place. And so increasingly when he's not there, I worry. When I don't see him there, I'm worrying, well, why is he not there? Now he just goes through spells where he comes and he goes, and sometimes he works up in Socky Hall Street. But you notice people that are part of the community or the family. And so, I don't think for a minute that nobody knew who this guy was. And yet, there he is, up on his feet, carrying his mat, cause for celebration, cause for great joy and delight. But instead, the Jewish leaders begin to persecute Jesus because he healed the man on the Sabbath, and it seems he did other things that day or other Sabbaths too. So, because Jesus was doing these things, plural, on the Sabbath, we're only told of one. So, did he tell other people who were gathered at the pool of Bethesda to get up and walk? We don't know. doesn't tell us. But we do know that he was doing these things on the Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Now, this passage is one of those passages in John, and there are a number of them, where the language sometimes seems quite cyclical. And John has a very uh, poetic style in many ways. And this is, uh, if you like, not, not one of those straightforward narrative passages that, that tell us about a miracle or the, the woman at the well or the, Cana, the wedding at Cana in Galilee. This is the deeper stuff. This is the what does it mean stuff. And more importantly, what does it mean for you and me? And so Jesus makes his defense. And actually what it says in, in, in the Greek is that Jesus answered them, but it uses a form of the verb that you would use in the courtroom. And so that's why the NIV translates it in his defense, because they're putting Jesus on trial. Lots of people put Jesus on trial. Lots of people put Jesus on trial. It is the nature of our fallenness that we will put God on trial, God in the dock. It's a measure of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and its effects and implications. Now, let me just remind you of what the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. There were two trees in the garden and there was one which was a tree of life which they were free, Adam and Eve were free to eat without limitation. 
And it was a tree that would give them eternal life. It's a tree that reappears in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible. And it says that the the, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. It's a tree that gives its crop every month. So it's a tree of bounty. It's a tree of plenty. It's a tree of life. It's a tree of provision, a tree of abundance, a tree of grace. It's a measure of the heart of God who gives, nurtures, supplies, and provides. And the weight of that tree was unrestricted. And then there was the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a tree that came with a warning not to touch it and not to eat from its fruit, or rather not to eat from it. The not to touch it was a bit that Eve added in. Not to eat from its fruit because they would surely die. And then the serpent comes alongside them and whispers in their ear and says, you will not surely die because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. In other words, you will be in a position to judge because if you know good from evil, that's what you're then able to do. In order to make any kind of judgment, you have to know what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, what is true and what is false. And so inherent in the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil was the ability to judge and to sit in judgment. And the lie also, or rather the seduction also was you will be like God. And so you will therefore be another God, separate from God and distinct from Him, with the ability to judge and make judgments. And so it was an invitation to be a little God, an invitation to be a little God in a position to judge and decide and sit in judgment. And because of that decision which they then made to eat from that tree, they were then cut off from the tree from which flowed nurture, provision, healing, life, grace. Two trees, one which speaks of relationship, the suckling, nurture, life-giving, grace-filled relationship of a God who invites us to life and fullness, and one which invites us to set ourselves up as little gods and to do good from evil and to make judgments about all things. You see, all of life out there in the world flows from the fruit of the wrong tree. Every courtroom, every business enterprise, every political decision, every sphere in the so-called world is an expression of people living as little gods. If I ruled the world, I did it my way. And so time after time after time, the world and its enterprises and its aspirations are about deciding what is good, what is best, what I want, 
what will give me power, what will give me authority, what will give me security, how I can preserve my godlike status of empire and control, autonomy and sovereignty in a world where everybody else is fighting the same battle and trying to take it from me. And so we are a nation, a world, a globe, a planet of little gods. Cut off from the source, the giver, expressed here, where these Jewish leaders sat in judgment on Jesus, on whether what he had done was within or out with the law, whether he kept the rules or not. And they sat in judgment and they put him on trial. And Jesus' answer to them was an invitation and a challenge to them to understand who he was and how it works. (laughs) My father is always at his work. Now, there was an understanding in Jewish theology that God was the father of all creation. And so, in a general, non-specific, impersonal sense, you could think of God as father. But Jesus took it a whole step too far. My father, he made it personal. Outrageous blasphemy right there. Is always at his work to this very day. And yes, in Jewish theology and thinking, it was understood that God had rested on the seventh day, but that, that God was always at his work because if God was not always maintaining and supervising and holding creation together then what happened every Sabbath day? Were things just going to run amok? And so there was an understanding that the life and the power and the grace and the, 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 the creativity of God was a, was, a, was a constant. But what did Jesus say? Because God's at His work, I too am working. Outrageous. Jesus ascribing to himself the same rights as God. For this reason, okay, right there, my father and I too am working, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you, that the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can only do what He sees the Father doing for whatever, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, and He will show Him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. And so Jesus speaks not of a deciding what a good thing to do would be, what a right thing or a holy thing, a godly or a compassionate thing. Jesus' ministry flowed out of the place of relationship with His Father. It flowed out of the place of knowing absolutely and utterly that He was His Father's Son, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And out of that place of 
relationship with the Father, of intimacy with the Father, of confidence that He was loved, that He was a delight to the Father. Out of the place of confidence that He and the Father were working together, then grace flowed. And Jesus was freed from the stress or the anxiety of independent living. <laughs> you see, most of our lives are full of the stress and the anxiety of independent living, making decisions about things and judgments about things and wondering how we're going to manage and how we're going to be provided for and how we're going to, uh, where, where the next uh, grant's coming from or the next paycheck's coming from. Because there's a part of my heart, and so I suppose there probably is a part of your heart too, because we're all in this together, right? This is, I have to make my own way in the world. I have to take responsibility and be a grown-up and make decisions and do right things or good things. Or... But you see, Jesus' ministry, as much as he did do right things and good things and holy things and compassionate things, they flowed out of the place of knowing absolutely that he listened for the Father's voice, that he knew that he was loved by the Father, and that all he had to worry about, and I don't think he even worried about that, all he had to focus on was doing what he saw the Father doing. You know, we often separate out in the church. We've stranded the Trinity sometimes. And sometimes in the Reformed church, we've put such an emphasis on, on Jesus as the Savior, and rightly so. Jesus is the Savior. Please don't mishear me. And we put an emphasis on Jesus as, as the one who is the way, the truth, and the life to the Father. But sometimes we've had this um, kind of dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God the Father is the angry judge, just desperate to hurl a few thunderbolts, desperate to smite and wipe out. And that Jesus, on the other hand, is, is, is the one who gets in between and says, no, Father, no, stop it, don't, please. And Jesus we see as the kind, smiling, compassionate, merciful face fighting back and fighting off and keeping at bay the anger of this judgeful, judge, this vengeful, judging God. Well, let this passage give the lie to all of that. Because Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. And so if Jesus gave the gift of healing and resurrection, even though the man wasn't dead, his life was as good as dead. If Jesus told a man who'd been supine for 30 years to get up on his feet and walk, that's because that's what the Father told him to do. And that's because the love and the grace that Jesus expressed and made manifest in visible ways that people could see we're in order that we might know what the Father is like. 
The Father is compassionate and grace-filled. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He does. So, take every miracle, take every healing, every sight-giving, every leper-cleansing. Take the moment where Jesus refuses to throw a stone or condone the throwing of a stone at a woman caught in adultery. Take every instance of somebody who was beyond the pale or outside the acceptable limits and see that Jesus was only doing what He saw the Father doing. Because I venture to suggest that some of us need to review our understanding of what the Father heart of God is like. And that God came in the person of Jesus to express the heart of God the Father, and that it was hearing what the Father called him to that took Jesus all the way to a cross in order that there the Father, the Son, and the Spirit might together bear the agony and the separation and the burden of guilt and contamination in order to make you free. This whole passage is about Jesus making perfectly clear that what they saw in Him was just an expression of the heart and the Father. And so, as the Father works, so I work. At the heart of knowing God is an invitation to come to a Father who has gone to incredible lengths to take your sin away and declare you free from condemnation and free from judgment. And at the cross, which was the idea of the Father and the Son and the Spirit all working together, was in order to bring you into a place of intimate relationship salvation and trust was in order to bring you into the beauty of this relationship. And therefore, the works that the Father does find expression in what Jesus does. Just as the Father raises the dead, even so the Son gives life to whom He's pleased to give it. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, yeah, 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 I know all this. And I'm sure you do. But you see, I find, and I know it's a bit of a hackneyed phrase, but hackneyed phrases become hackneyed because they contain truth in them, that the journey from there to there can be longer than 18 inches. That you can know he's your father. You can use the words and the language. But actually, his invitation and the invitation that Jesus issues, if you like, through the tone of this passage is that to know Jesus 
is to come into intimate relationship with the Father. And that to hear the word of Jesus and to believe in Him who sent Jesus has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over. Do you believe that you've crossed over from death to life? Do you believe that He has set you free from that small g godlike independent striving, that orphan detachment, that lonely empire building making your own way in the world, and invites you instead into the bosom of the Father to rest in the place of being fathered, to allow Him to let you see and grow into the ways in which you uniquely are a chip off the old block, a child of your Father, not with a small f, but with a capital F. The Jewish leaders couldn't see it. For them, their position as little judges, little emperors in their sphere, was too precious and important. It gave them too much value and identity. But instead, Jesus invites us who hear the words that it seems were no use to the Jewish leaders to believe them instead. But to know Jesus is to come into the place with the Father that Jesus was in. And to grow in that relationship that invites us to go through the day and say, Father, I am yours and you are mine. Through Jesus and because of him, I am in the Father and he is in me. There is no dichotomy, no split. You're not invited to choose the best member of the Trinity, the one that you like the best. Because Jesus gave his life at the behest and idea of the Father in order to bring you into a relationship through him with the Father that you might have the spirit of the Father, that you might have the spirit of Jesus living and dwelling within you. So what does it mean in practical terms? Well, it means in practical terms that sometimes the first thing that I certainly need to do to respond to this is to do less. <laughs> it's to look at my life and its busyness and its fullness and all the things I feel I have to do and to actually pause and ask myself what it would look like just to be a child of the Father. To be a child that is loved and known and provided for. That in this world where everyone is vying for autonomy and position, progress, success, financial security, and everything else, all your needs are met and provided for. They are promised because you've come to the Father who has made open now to you the fruit of the tree of life. And one day, you will have unfettered access to that, quite literally. But he invites you 
to receive freedom from the ways of this world and its strivings. He invites you to rest in the embrace of the Father which the Son gave his life to buy for you. He invites you to be. Let me read in closing the words of this lovely little psalm. Psalm 131. So we only have another 99 psalms to do till we get to it. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not, consider myself, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quietened myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever.